You know, several years ago, there was a young lady by the name of Bridget Gurney who was walking to work down the New York City streets where she lived when the unbelievable happened. If you watch the news, about once every two years, you'll find these big skyscrapers as they're building them. They've got these massive cranes that are there lifting up all of that material, pulling up those uh, big pieces of steel that they build those things. And uh, at times they will buckle and fall. That happens almost every other year or so. Uh, There'll be a big thing on television in the streets of New York where those things have fallen down. Well, this morning that this young lady was on her way to work, one of those massive uh, cranes buckled and all that steel fell right on top of that young lady. It pinned her to the street there. They called in the emergency, they called in New York City Police, naturally the fire department, New York City, called in, called in engineers, how do we cut this steel off? What do we do? We've got to get this girl out of here. The, the shocking thing is that she was still alive. It took them hours to cut all of this steel off of her and to pull her out, but they did. They got her into an ambulance. They took her off to the hospital, and after emergency surgery uh, and uh, some therapy, about four or five weeks later, she was ready to leave the hospital. Well, there was a television station in New York City that wanted to do a special interest on this car. How in the world do you survive something like that? So as they rolled her out of the hospital there in the the city, a a news reporter stuck a a microphone in her face and said, how in the world did you survive an accident that's unsurvivable? Now, I want you to listen to what she said. She said, I was able to survive that day because of a young man who was a construction worker, Paul Raganese who came over, and for the hours that they cut that steel off of her, he simply held her hand. She said, the only way I survived that kind of accident was because that man sat there and held my hand. There is something about the human touch. The ancient Greeks believed that the human touch could cure mental illness. The ancient Indians, Hindus, believed that the human touch could cure physical illness. Now, there's something to some of that because modern medical science tells us that human touch can lower the blood pressure and raise the hemoglobin. You ever notice, Pastor, when you go in the hospital, what people do? They do it unconsciously. Whenever you walk into a hospital room, they almost invariably reach out. They're looking for somebody the touch. There's something about the human touch. They say that students in a classroom, when a teacher gives a test, that if the teacher comes by and pats that student on the arm or the back, that student will generally score higher on the test. They say the same thing is true with waitresses or waiters. That when a waitress or a waiter, you know, I've done this illustration, I've read, done this research, There's never a time that I don't go to a restaurant that I don't think of this very thing. Uh, Because almost every time a waiter or waitress will come by when they give you the the ticket and they'll pat you on the hand or the arm or the back or say something to you, it, it is proven that they get a higher tip if they will do that. You know, the same thing is true with sports teams. That sports teams, those teams that are winning teams, they've got it down to a formula. They say that they receive six times the number of touches from their coach. Now, I just over two years ago, or a little less than two years ago, left Jacksonville, Florida to come to Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, Our church was downtown. We were just blocks away from the AT&T Stadium where the Jaguars played. Do you know what their records have been like for the last couple of years? Last in the league, practically. And we thought that if those football teams that win get more touches from their coach, we honestly thought we might would hire Benny Hinn to come and be the coach of the Jaguars. (laughs) 
There is something about the human touch, and let me tell you, nobody touched humanity like Jesus Christ. If you've got your copy of God's Word, I want you to go to Mark. We, you might as well just stay there tonight. Mark, the fifth chapter, just a few chapters up from Dr. Rock, where he was a few moments ago, just to follow this on through, Mark chapter 5, you come to what my predecessor in Jacksonville called the chapter of the incurables. There's the Gadarene demoniac, there's the woman with the issue of blood, and there is Jairus' daughter. Now, in all three of those situations, the Lord Jesus Christ touched those people. Now, what would we do to him today? With the Gadarene demoniac, we'd look at him and say, you need some Prozac, you need a psychiatrist, you need a psychologist, you need a psychotherapist, there's nothing we can do to you, you need to go find somebody and get, get on some meds. When you come to the woman with the issue of blood, you, we would generally say you need an oncologist, you need to go to MD Anderson down in Houston, you've got to find a cancer doctor somewhere. With Jairus... And his daughter, we would look at him and say, you've just got to call a funeral director. But in every one of those situations, Jesus didn't give that kind of advice. He stepped into the situation and he touched the people for the glory of God. And what he did was this. He's called us and he's called you at Hillcrest Baptist Church in Lebanon, Tennessee to touch this community for the glory of God. For you to go out and reach this community and touch this community for the glory of God. So let me take you quickly to the text tonight and let me pick it up there and I want you to follow along with me as you look at this unusual situation of Jairus who comes. Now, if we're going to reach and touch a hurting humanity, how are we going to do this? How do you touch hurting people? How do you touch a hurting community? In your community right now, when I drove in this morning early, I was stunned to see what I saw. I had no idea that the tornadoes had come over into this part. I thought it was all over in Nashville. Let me tell you, you folks up here in this area, I know that so many of your neighbors and even your family are hurting. How do you minister to hurting people? How do you touch hurting people for the glory of God? Number one, you may have to overcome some barriers. Now, let me begin reading with you, and I'd stand you up to read, but you'd be standing up for the next 45 to 50 minutes. So let me just begin in verse 21. When Jesus had crossed over again in the boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him, and so he stayed on the seashore. One of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up, and on seeing him, fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her so that she will get well and live. And he, that is Jesus, went off with him, that is Jairus, and a large crowd was following him and pressing on him. Now let me just stop right there because I want you to see certain barriers that you're going to have to overcome individually, as a church, even, even us as a denomination, doctor, we'll have to overcome if we're going to reach this generation and touch people for the glory of God. Number one is the barrier of position. Did you notice it in the text right there? Now, I, everything I'm going to do is going to relate back to the text. That's why you need to bring one of these with you when you come, okay? Did you notice what it says? One of the synagogue officials. Now, Dr. Rock was right when he said in chapter 2, Jesus was just getting started good in his ministry. But by the time you get to chapter 5, there is already a resolute opposition to who Jesus is by the religious establishment in Jerusalem. And let me tell you, they didn't have this crazy stuff uh, that we have in our day of political correctness or anything like that. They didn't have what we do have, which is not crazy, and that is a separation of church and state. The, the church, the synagogue, ran the nation. This synagogue official in the village, in the town where he was, he was everything. Being a synagogue official, he was 
part of the ruling body of Israel at that time. He would have been a local expression of it, but he would have been part of the ruling body. He would have followed what came down from Jerusalem. And in that area where he was the synagogue official, he would have been not just the preacher, he would have been the mayor, he would have been the city council, he would have been the judge, he would have been the jury, he would have been everything. He was the political machinery of that village or that town where he was the synagogue official. So this guy had to get over a barrier to come to Christ which tells me that many of us have got barriers that we have to get over to take Christ to a hurting world. Now, most of us will sit here and say, well, now listen, I'm, you know, it's, it's, it's not a position. I don't have a position. I'm not in that, that important. Let me tell you to where, where Baptists are today, okay? And I hate that one of our state uh, uh, leaders has to hear this, but I'm just going to tell you where we are today. We think way too much of ourselves. There was a time when Baptists were where the assemblies of God are about 50 years ago. But now we've gotten sophisticated. Uh, we've gotten money. Just go out there and look in the parking lot, what you're driving. You know, we've gotten some money. That's okay. That's fine. We're doing well. We've come up in American society. We now have all these schools, and we've got these colleges, and we've got all these degrees. And listen, I'm working on a, on a second uh, doctorate right now, so I can talk about this stuff. But we've gotten so stinking impressive, we can't share the gospel. We, we've got position now in community. We've got position now. We're running in and out of the White House, in and out of Con we're, we're, we're in and out of the State House, and we're so proud of ourselves that we've come to the place where we're too important to take the gospel to anybody. I want to tell you something. If you are too important to share Jesus Christ, you're just too important. You're just too important. We've got to get over this barrier of position and get back to the place where we go back to knocking on people's doors and walking into the average blue-collar home and sitting down with folks and sharing with them the love of Jesus Christ. So we're going to have to get over this barrier of position. I, I, I watch sometimes pastors I, watch, I go to conferences. I speak at a lot of conferences. I go in. There's so many pastors there with so much moose in their hair, I think they're going to sprout antlers any day. <laughs> We're too important. But let me tell you something. This guy might have been important, but God knew how to get his attention. Well, let me give you the second barrier. That seems to make everybody uncomfortable, which I enjoy a little too much. So I'll, I'll go on before I start getting in the flesh. The second is going to be the barrier of tradition. Now, everything Jesus did in chapter 5 flew in the face of Jewish tradition. Everything that you find here, you find in the opening verses here that he went over to Gadara. That was over on the eastern side of the Jordan, uh, of the Sea of Galilee and the Jordan River. But over there are the Gentiles. Over there is a cemetery. Uh, no Jewish rabbi would ever do that. It would make him ceremonially unclean. He wouldn't go there because that just flew in the face of Jewish tradition. He, he, uh, he wouldn't go and, uh, and meet with somebody who's demon-possessed. This guy's obviously demon-possessed, and yet the guy comes and falls at the feet of Jesus. No Jewish rabbi would have ever done that. It would have made him ceremonially unclean. My word, this woman in the middle of the chapter who comes and touches the hem of the garment of Jesus, she had an issue of blood for 12 years. Do you know what the book of Leviticus says about her? Put her out of the camp. Put her out of the camp. She'll make you ceremonially unclean. And then Jesus walks into a, a room with a dead body. No Jewish rabbi would have done that. It would have made him ceremonial, and he reaches down and he takes her hand. That would have made him ceremonially unclean. All of this flies in the face of Jewish tradition, and I want to tell you something. I've come to the conclusion that I think we Baptists may have more tradition than Roman Catholicism. Yeah. 
We got a lot of tradition in the Baptist church. You know, I, I pastored what was probably the most independent Southern Baptist church in the country when I pastored First Baptist Church of Jacksonville. Um, I, the, Dr. Lindsay Sr. pastored there. I think he went there in 41. He pastored there in 69. Dr. Lindsay Jr., his son came, and they co-pastored there for a while. They say that there was a day when the congregation, after Dr. Lindsay Jr. got there, that the congregation one Sunday began to applaud something. Well, Dr. Lindsay Sr. got up, and he walked to the podium, and he began to read them the riot act about clapping in church. Huh? And he turned around, and he sat down, and Dr. Lindsay Jr. got up and came to the pulpit, and he said, Daddy, that may be the finest speech I've ever heard you give. He said, in fact, that speech was so good, I think it deserves an applaud. And they all just stood up and applauded. <laughs> you see this stuff over here? I was in the first musical when I was 15 years of age in our home church in Greenwood, South Carolina, where I grew up, a little small cotton mill town, and it was the first time that a bass guitar, see one right there, and a set of drums had ever appeared in our church. And my daddy was a deacon in that church. And he would come home for months before we did the musical, and they would have debated in the deacons' meeting about having drums and a guitar in church. They did the same thing in Jacksonville. They say that Dr. Lindsay Jr. took a snare drum and put it way over there on the side, and about every two or three weeks, he would add another piece to it, just slowly. We got a lot of tradition. Look, y'all look at it now and you think, oh, we can't have church unless we got that stuff here. Listen, I'm old enough to remember where they just about broke out in fights because of that, that dumb stuff right there. Tradition. I almost feel like just jumping into Fiddler on the Roof. Tradition, you know? <laughs> tradition. I want you to look at something. If you've got your Bibles open there to Mark chapter 5, look on over just a few chapters to chapter 7 where the Pharisees and the scribes come to Jesus and they say, hey, your, your disciples don't wash their hands. Why do they not keep the tradition of the elders? Why do they not keep our tradition? And Jesus looked at them. Look at verse 8 here of Mark chapter 7. Jesus says, neglecting the commandment of God you hold to the tradition of men. He said to them, you're experts at setting aside the commandments of God in order to, to keep your traditions. I want to tell you something. That happens in a Baptist church more than you realize. Your pastor hadn't been here four months. He hadn't picked up on your traditions. Why don't you bury him tonight so that he never has to deal with it? Yeah, come on. Now, look, I'm going to get in a car and drive out of here. I don't care if I upset you or not, but I'm telling you, if you want to touch people in this community and reach them for the cause of Jesus Christ, put your traditions to death. Y'all remember all this hollering the next business meeting you have. It's more important to reach somebody for Jesus than it is to hold up your tradition. Okay? All right. Have I sufficiently beat that horse? Let me go to the third barrier. And the third barrier really, it gets me. Now, I've, I have got, I've enjoyed a little bit too much preaching these other two points to you, but now this one gets to me because it's the barrier of interruption. Everything in this chapter is an interruption as well. All you have to do is just look at the chapter. Jesus had been ministering. He gets in the boat in chapter 4. He wants to get to the other side, to the, to the other side where he can rest. So he gets in the boat. He goes to the other side, and he gets there, and immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him, and uh, he had been dwelling among the tombs, and, and no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain because he had often been bound with shackles and chains. Chains had been torn apart. He had this superhuman strength. Shackles had been broken in pieces. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Constantly, day and night, screaming among the tombs in the mountains, gashing himself with stones, seeing Jesus from a distance, this guy starts running toward him. Now, I call that an interruption right there. That would be an interruption. 
You get to G Jesus comes back now. He comes back to the other side after this whole thing with, uh, with Legion here. And as he comes back to the other side, we're told that he, the crowd meets him, verse 21, and it says he stayed by the seashore. That is right there where the seashore just lapped right up onto the, onto the sand. Jesus couldn't get any further because the people are pressing in on him. In through that crowd comes Jairus. There's another interruption. He goes off with Jairus, and here comes this woman with the issue of blood, and she stops and she touches the hem of his garment, and he feels the power go out of him. That's another interruption. Have you ever stopped to think that the whole of the ministry of Jesus Christ was carried out in interruption? Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem. He passes through Jericho. There is Zacchaeus, up a tree and out on a limb. Uh, he's trying to eat dinner, and there's the Syrophoenician woman pleading with him, won't you come and do something with my child? He can't even eat a dinner on a Wednesday night in Jubilee Hall because people are constantly. So he has to go and tend to these things. There's blind Bartimaeus crying out, son of David, have mercy on me. Constantly, Jesus is carrying out ministry in the midst of interruption. Now, I just have to tell you something that bothers me, and I don't like it. I, I'm 62. I know y'all are stunned. Um, I, can, I can tell you're looking at two ladies just passed out over there. Um, you know, I've gotten, I, as my mama would say, I've gotten sought in my ways. Because I like to do things in, in rhythm. I, I've got a pattern, and I like to keep it. And I like to study in the morning uninterrupted. I don't let, let me study. Let me stay in the study. Let me do that. If I need to go to the hospital, I'll get to the hospital after lunch. Let me go at this time. Let me do that. But you know, ministry just doesn't happen that way. I like to do it that way, but it just doesn't happen that way. And I am invariably having to be interrupted with something that I want to do. I wanted to go back to the room this afternoon. Sunday's coming, and I'm not but halfway through my sermon, and I want to finish my sermon up. Now I'm going to be writing it on Saturday, and I don't like to do that on Saturday. But I had one phone call from the office after another, interruption after interruption after interruption. A number of years ago when Deb and I were leaving, I'd been called as pastor. I was in the process of meeting with the pulpit committee from First Dallas, Texas, and I had a book I wanted to read. We, were fly we finally were going to go out there and meet with them. They'd been coming to High Point to meet with me. And so I got on the plane to fly out there to meet them. And Deb was with me. And I had a book, and I felt like, boy, I need to read this book before I get there that's going to help me with the interview, with this pulpit committee. This will give me some things that I can say and share to them. So I got on this airplane. Uh, and, um, you know, three seats over here, three seats over here. And uh, so, I, what do I do? There's a lady by the window. I look at my wife and I say, now look, you're smaller. You sit in that middle seat. Give me the aisle seat. So, she went in. She sat down. And I sat down and I was reading my book. And halfway from Greensboro to Dallas, my wife punches me. And she says, now that's it. I've done my time. I get the aisle seat for a little while. Now, listen, let me tell you something. I'm the leader in my family. So I looked at her and I said, okay. Um, I got up and I, I let, she came in and I sat down in the seat. Now the lady sitting beside me, I really didn't pay much attention. She was in a nice professional um, outfit and uh, she was doing something and I'm trying to read this book and I've got maybe an hour left in the flight and I wanted to finish it before I got to Dallas. All of these things going through my mind, all the ministry, I'm going out there in view of a call, but we were also putting together a mission trip to the Ukraine where we would take medical personnel, we'd take about 50 uh, pastors and their wives with us, we'd bring pastors from the Ukraine on the boat with us, all the way down the Dnieper River, we'd be training pastors, stopping, doing medical clinics, all these kind of things. I'm trying to put all of this together and I'm needing medicine. Where do I get medicine? How do I get this? Now, just keep all of that in mind. So in the middle of the flight, the woman sitting over there, she looked over and she said, what, what, what are you reading? 
And I don't, I'm, I'm hesitant to tell people right off I'm a Baptist preacher because most people have had bad experiences with Baptist preachers. And so I said, well, I'm reading something on hermeneutics. She wouldn't know what that is. And um, I thought, well, that'll satisfy her. Now, I begin to think to myself, now she spoke to me, I really should try to share the gospel with her. But I said, Lord, I'm reading hermeneutics right now. And so she turns back and she says, well, that's unusual. I don't know that I know what that is. What do you do? And I said to her, ma'am, I'm in the life assurance business. <laughs> I said, do you have life assurance? She says, yes, I do. And she went back. She, she went back to doing what she was doing. And the Lord was just saying, boy, that's a lie. I said, no, Lord, that's not a lie. I do tell people about assurance. So I looked back to her and I said, ma'am, I, I have to tell you the truth. You're thinking life insurance. I said life assurance. She said, oh, what's life assurance? So I said, okay, God, I'll, I'll be good. I, I want to finish this book. So I began to share with her. Jesus Christ. And the woman teared up. And I brought her to the place because I always ask the question, have you ever come to the place in your life where you've made the decision to put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ? You want to always ask that question. Bring them to the moment of decision. And so I asked her that. I said, have you ever done that? And she looked at me and she said, I have. But she says, I have gotten so far away from my walk with Christ. Thank you, she said, for sharing that with me. So I thought, I'll go back to reading my book. And then, this is no joke, she said, sir, and I looked back at her. She said, could you teach me how to do that? And I said, ma'am, she said, could you teach me how to do that? I'm landing and I'm going to see my boyfriend, and he doesn't know Jesus Christ. And I am under the conviction that I need to tell him just exactly what you told me. And I said, I guess so. <laughs> Listen, I've prayed for deacons to come and ask me that before. I've prayed for church people to come and ask me, will you teach me how to lead somebody? Here's this woman sitting on an airplane who turns to me and says, will you teach me? I'm landing. I'm going to meet somebody I think I'm in love with, and I want to share the gospel with him. So I shared with her. I told her exactly how you can do this to share with him. And that was about the time the plane put down its landing gear. And I just closed the book, and I thought, I've not read the book I wanted to read interrupted, interrupted, interrupted. And that lady bent down and she pulled out a business card and she said, I don't know why I'm going to do this, but she said, here's a business card. I'm with this pharmaceutical company and I'm one of the vice presidents. And if you ever need any help with medication for whatever reason, just give me a call. Listen, let me tell you something. And the Lord said, boy, if you let me interrupt you, I can get something done once in a while. Every time there's an interruption, you pause long enough to say, is this God's ministry for my life? Because if you're going to reach people, you're not going to reach people when the sun is shining and the sky is clear and the birds are singing, but in the night when the wind howls and the tornadoes strike, let me tell you, it's not convenient, but now is the time, church. Be interrupted for the glory of God. If you're going to touch people for God's glory, you're going, to have to, you're going to have to cross some barriers. Now, that's all introduction. Now, I want to preach. Now, let me take you to the second thing, and the second thing is this. You're going to have to overcome a fickle faith. Now, that's all I see much in the church anymore. People are on or they're off. They're hot or they're cold. They're in or they're out. They're up or they're down. And I feel like anymore we're just trying to, 
when I was a boy, we had Roman candles. You had to shake. I don't know that you have to do that anymore, but you had to shake those crazy things. You'd light them, and you'd stand out there and shake them, shake them, shake them, shake them, shake them, and then something would pop out of there. One light would burst out and go out there, and then it'll just fizzle out and go down. That's Christianity today. You just have to shake, 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 and every once in a while, you'll get somebody that'll pop off in a light of faith, and then it just kind of fades out. If you're going to touch people as a congregation, let me tell you something. You're going to have to have a stable faith. You can't be in one Sunday, out two Sundays, up one Sunday, down three Sundays. You're going to have to decide, I'm going to walk by faith. Now, let me just show you this. This woman, now, Jesus is going off with Jairus. This woman catches him. That's a whole different story. Jesus is talking to her which no rabbi would have ever done in public. He would have never spoken to a woman in public. Jesus turns and is talking to the woman. Verse 35, while he was still speaking, while Jesus is carrying on this conversation with the woman, they came from the house of the synagogue official. They just walk up. And brothers, I, I think about what you've said today uh, twice now, this, this morning and then this evening. They come up to him, just, it seems so cold. Your daughter's died. Why trouble the master any longer? She's dead. She's gone. Jairus, she's gone. Uh, don't, don't bother with him anymore. Listen, let me say at this point, we have a God that specializes in raising up dead things. Now listen, let me tell you, that's weak. If y'all were Pentecostal, y'all be running laps around this place right now. We have a God that's... My marriage is gone. It's dead. It's done. Stick a fork in it. God can raise it up. I've got a Sunday school class you can't do anything with. I've called the role. I've visited the role. Listen, let me tell you. Jesus can raise it up. He specializes in raising up dead things. Don't forget that. While he is still speaking, they come from the house of the synagogue official saying, your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? Now, here is Jairus who's come to Christ. He stepped over that barrier. He's put his faith. He believes in what Jesus can do, but now his faith is going to begin to totter. It's going to begin to be fickle. But Jesus, look at verse 36, overhearing, talking to this woman, they come and talk, they're talking to Jairus, but as he's talking to this woman, the word is parakuo. Para, the prefix, parallel, akuo, acoustics. He hears alongside this conversation, their conversation. Jesus overhears them, and he turns to the synagogue official, and he says this. Now, here come two imperatives in the Greek, two commands here. Do not phobia. phobia. Boy, America is gripped with a phobia right now about a virus, aren't we? I won't talk about it, but we do. There is a full-on, full-court press of phobia right now. Do not be un, unnaturally fearful. That's what he's saying here. Do not let fear grip your life. Only, look, pistuo, one word in the Greek, faith it. Faith it, pistuo, believe. And he allowed no one to accompany him except Peter, James, and John, and the brother of James. And they came to the house of the synagogue official. Do you see what happened? The guy turned from that conversation and continued to follow Christ. Now, right here, I just have to ask you, what voices are you listening to? Are there voices that you listen to that are voices of distraction? That little prefix, distraction, disc right there, means to divide. This thing has got you 
looking over here and then this happens. You're looking over here and then here and there and back over here. You're distracted at all of these voices that are coming at you. And then there's the voice of detraction. Detraction is the voice of mockery, the voice of put down, the voice of negativism. It usually comes from the inside. It is for certain that it comes from the devil. Oh, I can't do this. I'm not worthy. I'm no good. I'm too stupid. I'm not trained. I'm unable. That's the voice of detraction. And then you have the voice of dissension that usually comes from other brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, we, you know, uh, that, that may have been an exciting week of preaching, but we can't do all those things that they're all in here telling us to do. All those preachers come in here and just preach this stuff, and then they get out. That's a voice of dissension right there. Just the voice of dissension. Which voice are you listening to? I often have wondered in this passage, what in the world if Jairus had listened to the wrong voice? He would have never experienced the power of God in his life. But he doesn't. He listens to the voice. He's going to, he's going to overcome this fickle faith. And Jesus takes him back to his house. And the people there are loudly weeping. Verse 38, weeping and wailing and entering in, he said, why do you make this commotion and weep? The child has not died but is asleep. Now, let me tell you something right there. That is uh, God's perspective on death. The child was physiologically dead. Some will take this and say, oh, well, you see here, the child really wasn't dead. Yes, she was physiologically dead. What God is doing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is giving those of us who love and believe in him a picture that God sees our death is nothing more than us falling asleep. That's all he sees. Now listen, y'all, there's three of us excited here. About three minutes before you die, you'll get excited about that. Well, they go from weeping and wailing to laughing. Verse 40, they began laughing at him. But putting them all out, I love this. Putting them all out. Why does Jesus do that? I'll tell you why. Because they had already determined what God could and could not do. Some of you walked in here tonight with that very impression. I've already decided what God can and cannot. God can't do that in my life. God's not going to do that in my life. God's not going to do that in this church. Why couldn't we have revival? Why could not a revival break out in this church tonight that would sweep across this country? Because Lord knows we desperately need it. This nation is desperately in need, not of another politician, maybe not even another preacher, but what we are in need of is a move of the Holy Ghost of God. Why not here? Why not in this place? Why not tonight? Because most of us came in here tonight with our minds made up what God can and cannot do. Because we've got a faith that is hot and then it's cold and it's up and it's down and it's in and it's out and it's on and it's you're never going to reach anybody with a faith like that. Let me give you the last thing. And the last thing is this. You're going to have to submit to the overcomer. You're going to have to overcome barriers, and you're going to have to overcome a wildly fickle faith, but you're going to have to come to the place where you submit to the overcomer. Who's the overcomer? Jesus. Watch this. He goes into the room, taking the child by the hand. Now, there's the touch of Jesus right there. Some of you here tonight need that touch. There's the touch of the hand of the master. Taking the, the, the child by the hand, he said, now here's the voice of the master. He's going to speak. And he says to her, Talithe kum, which translated means, little girl, I say to you, get up. There's the word of Jesus. Now, I have to tell you something. I'll try my best not to be emotional. I loved my daddy. My daddy was a great man of God. He was a man's man. He fought Golden Glove. He was in on the invasion of Europe. He went in at Utah late in the afternoon of the first day. 
He survived it. He stayed there until the war was won. He ended up, he unloaded Patton at Cherbourg and went with Patton to Paris, and he ended up at the Battle of the Bulge at the end of the war. He was a man's man. It was a Baptist church planner that led my daddy to the Lord. My dad didn't have but an eighth grade education. I'm first generation off the farm and the first to get an education in my family. And my dad was a Bible student. And my dad used to tell me, son, if he had not called that girl specifically by name, everybody in human history that had ever died would have gotten up at that moment. Woo, just sit there. I'm going to go over here and have a spell. Three times Jesus did that to the son of the widow of Nain, to Lazarus, and to this little girl. Every single time he spoke directly to the corpse or everybody that had ever died would have gotten up. Good night, nurse. Y'all just sit there. Just sit there. Whew. That God right there is my God, and he has power to do just that. He says to her, little girl, I say to you, get up. Verse 42, immediately, hear the results. Immediately the girl got up and began to walk. She was 12 years of age, and immediately they were uh, completely astounded. Mark uses this word constantly, immediately, 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 immediately. Immediately she got up. Immediately they were completely astounded. And he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this. And he said, give her something to eat. Now that has puzzled me for nigh unto 60 years as to why Jesus said, give her something to eat. Now let me show you what had happened here. He's overcome death. He's the overcomer. He's overcome doubt. And immediately they were completely astounded. Brothers, let me tell you, I think that is sometimes harder than overcoming death, is overcoming doubt. He overcame doubt, but he overcame any thought of deficiency. When he said, what's the last thing you give somebody when they are that close to death. Something to eat. You don't walk in when somebody's dying and say, hey, I got a little Chick-fil-A here. You want some? <laughs> you don't do it. I'm serious. Do you know why Jesus said give her something to eat? Because when I heal and when I raise, I do it right. <laughs> Amen? I do it all the way. If you're going to reach this community for Jesus Christ, you're going to have to submit personally, congregationally to the overcomer. Let me tell you, he'll enable you to touch people for his glory. A couple of years ago, I, got on, I was running to the airport to get on an airplane to fly to Memphis because I was preaching at uh, Mid-America. Uh, at the time, my minister of music had been Adrian Rogers' minister of music, Dr. Jim Whitmire, and uh, Dr. Whitmire was with me, and he was on the plate. We were both flying there. He was going to do the music. I was going to preach, and he called me. He said, he said uh, Mac, are you close to the plane? He said, they're about to shut the door. They canceled our flight, put us all on this other, other flight, and he said, they're closing the door. Are you close? I said, I'll never make it. So I got down to the gate. They were pulling away from the gate, and I walked up to the little girl there, and I said, ma'am, uh, I have got to get to Memphis in the morning. I've got to. That was my plane. And uh, she said, we have a flight out at 6 o'clock. I said, well, would you, would you put me on? She says, I know who you are. And she says, I've got you. I'll take care of you. You just show up. You be sure you're here on time. Tomorrow morning, I've got you on the flight. So I came with my suit on. I came with my Bible in hand because I was going to study whatever I was going to do at Mid-America. I was going to sit on that little plane. And it was on one of these little... Um, you know, two seat, two, one, a tube with two seats here, a tiny little walkway, two seats here. Built by North Koreans to torture people. <laughs> You've been on those little regional jet, that smallest, that little 200 thing that the Canadians build? Well, I, I won't go there. 
But I got on there, and, and every seat on the plane is filling up but the seat by me. And you know what I do? I begin, Lord, you love me. I know you do. You've saved this seat by me. Nobody's going to sit here. I'll be able to relax, stretch out. Every other seat is taken. Thank you, Lord. And while I'm thanking the Lord, the biggest Marine you've ever seen stepped into the doorway of that plane. He was huge. He wasn't fat. He was huge. Huge. All I could think when he stepped in, I mean, you couldn't see sunlight around that doorway when he stepped in. All I could think was the old song by Tennessee Ernie Ford. Every morning at the mine, you could see him arise. And he came, he had on his fatigues and he came, his camouflage outfit and he, he came over and he looked and he said, sir, he said, that's my seat. And I just stepped out of the way because I wanted to say, you wasn't going to get all of that in that seat. <laughs> but he got in there and I slipped in beside him and I looked at him and I said, um, buddy, you going home? You, ho you done? You going home for good? He looked at me and he said, I'm going home for two weeks and I'm going back to Afghanistan. I said, well, listen, let me tell you something. We pray for you guys and ladies. We pray for y'all. Uh, and uh, thank you for what you do. And the plane takes off. And as the plane takes off, he and I talk just a little bit. He's going home for his wife's birthday. And uh, we're just kind of sitting there sharing. And the stewardess comes by, the steward, the stewardess. And this guy over here wants to buy him a beer. I'm looking at him crossways now. You know, hey, let me get you a beer. So he gets him a beer. And um, the guy says this. He says, I see you've got a Bible. He says, I, 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 we give all of those who come off the field a Quran. He said, can I tell you what I do? I said, yeah, I'd love to hear. He said, I guard those that they bring off the combat field. I said, I believe it. They don't need anybody else there but you. Um, <laughs> He said, I guard, he said, now, we treat them with respect. We are, we're not disrespectful. I said, listen, I don't believe that. I don't watch CNN. We don't believe that, so don't worry about it. I said, we, we know that y'all treat them well. He says, we really do. He said, I, I, we give them a Quran. We respect them. We respect their religion. We respect their, their holy book. He said, I guess their holy book is a lot like that Bible. I said, oh, is that right? I said, can I talk to you about that? He said, yeah. I said, have you ever read the Quran? He said, no. I said, well, I have. I said, have you ever read the Bible? He said, no. I said, well, I have. I said, let me, let me tell you something about the two. Listen to this. The Quran says, uh, love not joy, for Allah loveth not those who joy. I said, but now the Bible says this. These things I've spoken to you that you might have joy and that your joy might be full. I said, so you got one book that says don't have joy because God doesn't like for you, Allah doesn't like for you to have joy, and the other book that says Jesus came and he gave you his word so that you could not just have joy, but that you'd be full up with it. I said, now listen, think about this. I said, uh, security. The book of uh, the Quran will tell you that there is no eternal security. I said, Muhammad said he had no idea if he would go to paradise. Now, I said, now, if Muhammad says that in the Quran, that he did not know if he would go to paradise, he'd have to wait until he died to see if all of his good works outweighed his bad works and how that would work out before he would know. And I said, if Muhammad would not know, how could any Muslim ever know? I said, but now listen to what the Bible says. These things I've written to you who believe on the name of Jesus Christ that you might know you have salvation. That you might know. I said, wouldn't you like to have the knowledge of eternal security? I said, but let me give you one better than that. Nowhere in the Quran will you ever read that Allah loves anybody. It never says that. It'll talk about Allah the merciful, Allah this, Allah that. But you never read where Allah says, I love man. In fact, uh, imams would say that's blasphemy. I said, but now listen to what the Word of God says. It says, God 
is. Do y'all know that verse? I said, here's another one. This verse says, we love him because. Do y'all know that verse? I said, but here's the best one of all. For God so loved that he, his, that whosoever should not, but would. Do you know that verse? You know enough to share with somebody. Every one of you in here tonight, I want you to stand with me right now, all of us standing. You know enough to share. In the mountains of North Carolina, out of a Gideon Red New Testament, on a camp cot at 12 years of age, John 3, 16, I gave my life to Christ. One verse, one verse. That's all it took, one verse. And I read it this way at the instruction of the guy who was sharing with me, for God so loved Mac Brunson that he gave his only begotten son. And there at 34,000 feet, I looked and I gave that question again. Wouldn't you like to have that kind of relationship with a God who loves you and secures your eternity? And that big old Marine said, I sure would. And he put that big old hand in my hand. And at 34,000 feet in the air, he gave his life to Jesus Christ. Let me tell you something. That's not Mac Brunson. That's God. That's Jesus. And the same Jesus that did that with me is the same Jesus that will do that with you. I want you to bow your heads with me right now. I'm going to ask the pastor to come and stand here. And I started off this morning preaching about this very same thing out of Luke 19. And that is stop playing it safe with the gospel. Risk, invest your life. And tonight I've come back just to kind of bring it full circle and to call you to the place where you know enough. You've just quoted it to me. You know enough to share Jesus Christ. I wonder how many of you tonight are willing to step out and say, I'm willing to touch this community for the glory of God. But before you can do that, you've got to be sure you're touched by God's glory. How many of you tonight will slip out and come to the altar and just simply say at the altar tonight, Lord, I'm willing. I'm not an expert. I'm not a professional. But I am your child. And I do desire this. And Lord, I'm willing. Would you come just quickly right now to the altar? Get on your knees. Just tell the Lord all you need to say is, Lord, I'm willing. Are there others? Every deacon in this church ought to be willing. Every staff member ought to be willing. Every Sunday school teacher, every committee member, all of us, I want to touch this community for the glory of God. Why don't you just come and take the pastor by the hand and just look at him and say, you can count on me. He's new. He needs to know that. You can count on me. I'll be here. I'll go for the glory of God, not for numbers' sake, but for the sake of God's honor, for the sake of God's glory, for the sake of God's name. You just come. You just tap his hand and say, I'll be willing to touch someone for God's glory. Would you come?